Hello, Truth Table listeners. This is Christina Edmondson. So you're probably picking up a fair amount of background noise. I am in Memphis, Tennessee at MLK 50, having a really sobering but good time here. And for this week, we have a Truth Table classroom with a talk that I did at Covenant College in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, in this talk, I'm, I'm discussing the state of polarization in our country, and I'm looking at the Apostle Paul and the way that he deals with people in his own group and how he deals with folks that are outside of his group. I hope that it blesses you. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so usually at this time, I'm, I'm a little further up north. I'm usually in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I want to... I, I want to thank you for having the sunshine here, because we may not have sun in, in Grand Rapids today. So that sun has been a real blessing to me. And I'll, I'll give a specific shout out to those daughters. Their names are Zoe and Shiloh. They don't use, their names don't usually make my bio, but I probably should include it. Zoe and Shiloh send you their love. Um, so today, I don't have a ton of time before you, but I'm going to try to use it as wisely as possible to talk to you a little bit about the Apostle Paul, some of you may have familiarity, pretty popular, um, and a polarized nation. The Apostle Paul and a polarized nation. Now, you might say, Dr. Edmondson, Christina, what polarized nation? Well, I submit to you today that we live in a polarized nation. A nation that is marked by poles, right? A nation that has created dyads. Dyads that can never meet in the middle. Dyads that can never hold up mirrors to the other side. Poles that are so far apart that it ensures that we never humanize each other. That we don't see each other. And that we're never challenged about our side of the pole. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? Right? Republicans, Democrats, Poles, Northerners, Southerners, hello Southerners, Poles, right? West Coast people, East Coast people, Poles, right? Can the two come together? Can the two have a conversation? Well, the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, um, I think he offers some wonderful intercultural lessons for us if we're willing to see them, if we're willing to hear them. And so in many ways, the apostle Paul, we see in his journeys the critical role that intercultural aptitude, our skill, our ability to understand ourselves and understand our neighbor, his cultural humility, and his own cultural authenticity play in his ability to be an ambassador of the gospel. I submit to you today that intercultural aptitude, humility, and authenticity are vital to God's gospel mission. So we'll look at two of Paul's journeys and one of them will see Paul's desire to connect 
with someone or people outside of the household of faith. I want you to really hone into this biblical narrative as I read it. And then we'll spend some time listening to Paul's direction and conversation with people inside the family of faith about our very identities. Now, polarization is an intercultural development concept, and I've subtly explained it to you already. But people who are in polarization see the world in us and them language. It's a judgmental way of seeing the world. And oftentimes, the us is almost acultural. Well, this is just how you do chapel. This is how you do college, right? This is just how it ought to be. Now, the them, when you're in polarization, ah, we're critically discerning the them, analyzing, critiquing, holding at arm's length. That's polarization. Now, sometimes it switches, where we have a bit of a reversal, where we overly critique ourselves, and we give other cultures a pass. There's no critical understanding, no critical appreciation. We are in a polarized nation. So let's journey with Paul. Here's his first trip in Athens. And here he is before the men of Athens. Then Paul stood up before the Arabagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and examined your objects of worship, I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as something unknown, I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human needs. As if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For from one man, he made every nation of men to inhabit the whole earth, and he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets, your own, sorry, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. Although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof 
of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to mock him. But others said, we want to hear you again on this topic. At that, Paul, at that, Paul left. But some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others who were with them. This passage comes from the book of Acts. You will find it. It's well preached. It's well cited. It's well communicated. But I asked you to look at it closely today with an intercultural lens. Would you give that a try? Maybe you don't know, but the Bible is a book that was written in a cultural context about a Christ who lived within a cultural identity, who has something to say to people, none of which are acultural. So what do we see in this passage? Well, we see the Apostle, pa the Apostle Paul functioning as an intercultural, spirit-filled expert. Now, why do I say that? One, he demonstrates cultural appreciation. Now, a cultural appreciation is not the same as moral neutrality. Let me be clear. Cultural appreciation requires looking at something long enough to even know what you're actually critiquing. In order to judge, you have to rightly see. You have to sit with something long enough. Appreciation does not mean a moral pass or moral neutrality. Appreciation means sitting with something long enough to see the systems, the experiences, the histories that have shaped it into what it is today. That is appreciation. And why do I say he shows appreciation? Because he's walked around Athens long enough to notice that it's quite religious, because he says it in the text. He's walked around Athens long enough to come upon the unknown God. He's walked around Athens long enough to know where people have their serious debates and to understand the language in which they communicate in. That requires cultural humility and cultural appreciation. So he's observed and he's appreciated. And he's noticed things that this community finds value in. He's also able to appeal to the very things that this community values. Remember that unknown God? Clearly, Paul could come in and say, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I need to show you the right way to think about this. I, I need to show you the right way to be. But he doesn't. He uses the language of the people. He's able to sit with the values of the people group long enough and to acknowledge the common grace that might be in place. That God's grace does not back up on a people group just because we might back up on that people group. But God's grace is evident around God's world. And so he's able to hone into that very thing to demonstrate appreciation and then to strategically and prophetically use it to point to the God of grace, the God who is the creator 
the true God, the one God. Well, look at that. What do you mean? He's able to use these pagan people's traditions and beliefs to point to the truth of the gospel? Well, it appears to be the case, at least in this text, that he's able to do that very thing. Now, he's also able to do something that I want you to notice. He's able to preach a gospel that is able to reach the people that are present, the diverse people that are present. As you can see at the end of the passage that I read, that he's able to reach the intellectually and socially elite with the gospel proclamation, and he's able to reach Damaris, a woman who likely would have been shunned in such a space. And he's able to reach all the others that were there who would be called by the gospel. A true, prophetic, strategic gospel is able to reach people of all cultures or else something is wrong with the gospel that we preach. A polarized gospel can't do that, but a biblical gospel can. So, we also see that he's able to reach this polarized group of people. Maybe you don't know, but the Athens function like many pagans, which is that they believe that their group is superior. That's a pagan notion. Did you know that? Cultural superiority is a pagan belief system that says, my people, my country, my block, well, that's the best one, because I'm a part of it. It's a bit of a moral narcissism, don't you think? But that belief system of exceptionalism runs throughout human history, doesn't it? Oh, and it deceives us. But the gospel that Paul preaches is one that reminds these Athenians that one God has brought about a tapestry of people from one man, from that man, Adam. And so we are more like our neighbors than we want to admit because we all come from the same origins. That fundamentally slaps in the face cultural supremacy. It slaps in the face American exceptionalism. Simply put, we are no better than anyone else. And a true biblical gospel preaches that, declares that, because it is a gospel that is Catholic and universal, that is required to reach all diverse people. Paul declares this gospel before the Athenians. So talking to this group of unbelievers, right? The intellectual and academic and economic elite, he appeals to their traditions, a group that's not like himself. He uses their language when he can, but still holds to truth and points them to the truth, Jesus Christ. His technique is filled with humility and poise, but he does not compromise at any point. The gospel is clearly articulated. And this is his winsome approach for his neighbor, the Athenians. But I want you to go on another journey with me to see Paul's approach 
to people within the household of faith, within God's covenant community of grace. Are you following? Right? So we've got Athens. Let's go somewhere else. So Galatians 2, 11, 14. Now, I'm a person who actually does not fear conflict. I'm actually a big fan of transformational conflict, which means that sometimes we got to bump heads if we're actually going to grow. Just to tell you the truth, that's going to happen, okay? And so, you know, I'm a big fan of the Apostle Paul, particularly when I see him in this passage. And this is family business that he's about to discuss. And here we are. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. In Christ, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the, God, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Different strategy, don't you see? Clear gospel articulation, but a different strategy. See, that was family business. That was in-group business. The way that people in-group can talk to each other is a little different than people outside of the group can talk to them. Does that make sense? Right? See, in-group conversations, right? That's Paul and Peter. They come from the same people. So that was two Jews saying, hey, 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 hey. That was real talk between people inside a group. There's a level of directness. There's a level of candor. One that is afforded to you when you're a member of a group. 
So what does this mean? To be very frank with you, what this means is that white evangelicals must have frank conversations with white evangelicals. Does that make sense? That's an in-group conversation. What that means is black Bible believers, that's what Barner would describe, black people who are high rates of religiosity, must have frank conversations with black Bible believers. That's in-group conversation. Women get to say things to women that men don't really get to say to women. Have you noticed that? It may not be too effective. It may not go over well. I mean, you could do it, but if you want to be prophetic and strategic, you might want to notice what Paul does here. And Paul does this direct confrontation because Peter is attacking the central core of the faith. This is not an argument about what version of Scripture we're going to use. This is not an argument about hymns or contemporary music. This is an argument about what is the gospel. So if you're going to blog or if you're going to write, or if you're going to compose letters or critiques, make sure it's about the most important thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leaders are held to higher standards, and that's why Paul had to critique his friend Peter the way that he did, publicly. The cultural legalism that Peter was espousing was discrediting the blood-bought gospel itself. And our own cultural legalism, that's Jesus plus anything else, Jesus plus my American exceptionalism, Jesus plus my worldview, Jesus plus my middle-class status, Jesus plus my reform confessions over yours, my brother and sister in Christ. Even a good thing can fall into legalism. And cultural legalism is heresy. So this is the kind of thing that gets publicly rebuked. So what did we learn today? That when Paul talked to the folks in, in Athens, those pagan folks, the them in a polarized world, he exercised cultural appreciation and cultural humility and he pointed them to the grace that was already embedded within their very community that they could not see. He shone the light of the gospel so that they could see that God had been working there all along. And when the Apostle Paul talked to his good friend that he shared identity with, that was a co-laborer and leader in the gospel movement, he had a very real conversation with him, didn't he? A direct conversation that reminded his dear friend Peter and all those who would be around that cultural legalism is heresy and that we have one thing that centers us and grounds us, and that is the sacrificial work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's worth transformational conflict, don't you think? Blessings to you. Mm -hmm.